Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Coming up, we've got a fantastic guest for you. She is best-selling novelist Catherine Weber, who was probably told throughout her life, you should really write a memoir. Why? Because her family is fascinating, and so she did, and she's here to talk with us about it. But first, Fritz and I have been running media recon missions for you, and we've got some intel. Fritz, (laughs) what do you have for us? My my first one is a Netflix documentary called High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. Now, it's based on a James Beard award-winning book by Jessica B. Harris. And just to set the tone here, the term high on the hog comes from the best cuts of pork and those coming from the upper part of a pig's legs and their backs. Now, these parts were saved for the masters on the plantation or the upper classes. So the term living high on the hog means you're living large. This is four episodes long that trace black cuisine from Africa to Texas. It's really beautifully done. It combines historic cuisine with historic events. The host is chef and writer Stephen Satterfield. The first episode is called Our Roots. It goes back to Africa, to the country of Benin. And we learn that okra and yams come from the western areas of Africa before they came to the United States. And we get to solemnly walk through the gates from which enslaved people departed to make their transatlantic trip. This is the most touching part of the series. It's really quite beautiful. It's solemn and quiet and beautiful. Episode two is called The Rice Kingdom. The crop that was even bigger than cotton in the Carolinas was rice. And we learned of the human cost of the rice trade back in the 17th and 18th centuries. We also get treated to the delicious work of a chef who specializes in black culinary traditions. Episode three is, this this is really interesting, our founding chefs. This talks about mac and cheese and Virginia ham being the work of the very celebrated enslaved head chefs of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. They were James Hemings, who was the brother of Sally Hemings, the enslaved lover of Thomas Jefferson, mother of four of his children, and George Washington's chef, Hercules. These men are so influential in American cuisine that we visit a restaurant which still concentrates on keeping their recipes alive. Episode four is the most timely. We visit Texas, and we learn that the first cowboys in America We're black cowboys, and we get treated to a meal that would have existed to celebrate the original Juneteenth when enslaved people were finally freed in Texas two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. It was just deemed a holiday last Friday. It is beautiful. It is sumptuous. It's touching. Wonderful history. Wonderful cooking. Great show. Wow, that sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. I'm going to check that out. So there's a show on Apple Plus, good show for the family. It's called Home Before Dark. From the co-author of Cruella and the director of In the Heights, child journalist Hilde Lisko moves with her family to her father's childhood cozy lakeside village. The sleuthy Hilde quickly begins unsettling townsfolk by unearthing shocking cold case crime-solving secrets. This is a fun family viewing type of show. It's very well done. Brooklyn Prince carries the show well as Hildy, Home Before Dark on Apple+. Plus. How many episodes? 
I'm not sure we were, we started season two. It's one of those things where you watch it and you think, okay, that was nice. And then all of a sudden, you know, half a year later, season two. Oh, and then you have no idea what happened in season one. <laughs> I think there was a crime. Did someone go missing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, you have to remind yourself. It's like all the shows we watch, it's like we suddenly know 10,000 additional people. <laughs> and we have to keep up with their names and their storylines. All right, good but. one. Well, I got a show called Flack. This is on Amazon Prime. So far, two seasons are streaming. A Flack is a public relations operative. Now, this show is about a Flack that works for a PR office in London named Robin, played by Anna Paquin. It's a British production, mainly a British cast. I, I like it because it's kind of like a female Ray Donovan, but with a sense of humor. Anna's character specializes in crisis management. She has the ability to get high-profile, ill-behaved celebrity clients out of trouble, like getting caught with an extramarital lover or a pound of cocaine in his trunk or whatever. Again, Ray Donovan, darker and funnier. <laughs> the leads are all women, and they argue and dish and commiserate about female topics, and it's hysterical. The only thing that's hard is the writing is really crackling, fast-paced, but it comes at you so fast with the British accents, you have to really pay close attention. The only one who's 100% understandable is Anna and her Scottish intern. Fun show, falls under the category guilty pleasure. <laughs> After you watch, you feel so bad while you feel so good. <laughs> Excellent. I will check that out. Fritz, do you listen to Radiolab? Yes. Yeah. So Radiolab has a new series called The Vanishing of Harry Pace. And I love Radiolab. I love podcasts. Documentary-style podcasts are sort of like a documentary but without the visuals because mm -hmm. it's much safer to listen in your car than actually you know, watching a documentary in your car, which <laughs> you have to do very cautiously. Yeah, they, they, they worried against that. Grab the wheel. Okay, so this show delves into the fascinating story of Harry Herbert Pace, the founder of Black Swan Records, which 100 years ago was the first African-American-owned and operated record label with widely distributed output. Pace launched the careers of Ethel Waters and Louis Armstrong. He coined the term rock and roll, inspired Ebony and Jet magazines, and desegregated the South Side of Chicago in an epic Supreme Court battle. Then he disappeared. But why? The Vanishing of Harry Pace is a series about the phenomenal but forgotten man who changed America. It's a story about betrayal, family, hidden identities, and assigning rightful ownership of an art form. So much great stuff here. The Vanishing of Harry Pace from Radiolab and the team behind Dolly Parton's America, which is another great podcast series. Jad Abumrad and Shira Oliai. It sounds amazing. As you know, the, the history of African-American music is something really special to me. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know about it. I'm so happy to learn about it. Cool. Yeah, you're going to find a lot of overlapping storylines with what you already know to be true. It's just great stuff. Also, cool. it you know coincides a lot with the uh, jazz documentary, Ken Burns, and all these different layers of music, Am nice. American, uniquely American music. Right now, it's time for us to welcome our guest, Catherine Weber. Catherine Weber's six novels and a memoir are all highly praised, some award-winning, and they have made her a book club favorite. Her newest novel and seventh book is still Life with a Monkey, although she's got an even newer one coming out in moments. Catherine's previous novel, True Confections, the story of a chocolate candy factory in crisis, was published in 2010. Her sixth book is a memoir called The Memory of All That, colon, George Gershwin, K-Swift, and My Family's Legacy of Infidelities. 
This book explores the mysterious and captivating branches of Catherine's family tree, including her father's thick FBI file and her grandmother's long and loving affair with George Gershwin. Catherine was the Richard L. Thomas Visiting Professor of Creative Writing at Kenyon College for seven years. She taught creative writing at Yale University for eight years and was an adjunct assistant professor in the graduate writing program in the School of the Arts at Columbia University for six years. She has taught at various international writing workshops from the Paris Writers' Workshop to the San Miguel D'Alande Writers Conference and the West Cork Literary Festival in Ireland. Welcome, Catherine. Great to be here. I can't believe you're home. <laughs> You've got I mean, amazing, well, amazing you have time to talk been, to us. <laughs> I've been stuck for quite a while, pandemic-wise. Right. Uh, I'm desperately missing um, two grandsons who are um, who are who live in London and are on the wrong side of the Atlantic Ocean. Oh my goodness! So what, the little one, I mean. FaceTime is fantastic, but the little one um, is one and a half now. When I last saw him, I held him in my arms and he was a, an infant. And now he probably thinks I'm a show. And when we do get back together, he, he might be excited that I'm, you know, actually live in person. I don't oh know. My God, but, you're three uh, dimensional. <laughs> this is yes, awesome. Exactly. Exactly. So your book, the the book, The Memory of All That, which we're going to talk about mostly today, your book carefully unfolds layer upon layer of family intrigue, and the reader quickly learns to absorb one astonishing detail while bracing for the next. This all must have dawned on you in fits and starts as you were growing up. Are we re-experiencing your own growing awareness of your remarkable family history? Well, I do begin with um, sort of wade into this ocean with me. Uh, and I actually also end um, in, in an ocean. Um, and I must say, right from the outset, that is such a beautiful passage for anybody who is a father of a daughter. It's so touching. And it, the, the, the opening piece in your book, it grabs you immediately and you just feel all of your emotions and you trying to figure out your father's emotions. It was quite beautiful. Go ahead. Well, thank you very much. It's it's, it's touching and also, I think, a bit alarming. Mm -hmm. um, but. Um, but I wanted you to be there with me. So I, I appreciate your your read of that. Alarm because um, it was know, the first time you ever saw your father in a bathing suit. <laughs> yep. It yeah, was like, it it. Was like what, it. whatever she said, he was going to go ahead and do the opposite. This guy had no instinct or awareness mm -hmm. of what people in the world needed from him. He did whatever the hell he wanted mm -hmm. to do. And that was kind of your awareness of like, I'm not really safe with this guy. He's on his own path. Mm -hmm. I better right. buckle what, in. My, my memory of it is being frightened because every time I said I want to go in, he would say, you know, oh, you want to go further into the water? No, I want to go out. Oh, you want to go out to sea? And um, obviously, I didn't drown because here I am. And I have, but I, I end that passage with I have absolutely no memory of not drowning. Um, what I, what I remember is the fear, the fear of it. Oh wow! Uh, but the memory of all that—a phrase I trust you to recognize from one of the great Gershwin songs. Sure. They can't take that away from me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the memory of all, the way you wear your hat, the way you sip your tea, the memory of all that. They can't take that away from me. Um, all that uh, encompasses a great deal. Um, but I suppose if there's a thesis to the memoir, um, it's that my grandmother's romance with George Gershwin and the choices she made um, are like a rock dropped in a pond and the ripples are still coming. And I think it, it's the center of the story, even though I spend a lot of time talking about other people, other aspects of my family, 
I don't think my mother would have married my father if it weren't for George Gershwin in her childhood and um, and the ways that in some odd, odd, in some odd senses, I think I can make the case that my father was like a version of George Gershwin. And, and that may have been part of my mother's uh, fascination with him. That, smart, that answered my smart question. Smart boy from the streets of Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and your father was Stanley Kaufman? Sydney. Sydney Kaufman, sorry. Yes. And, and uh, um, I love that comment that you made, uh, uh, the connection between uh, your mother allowing Sydney into her life because of what she watched with your grandmother and George Gershwin. But, but Sydney always had a struggle in his life, your father, uh, to uh, try to attain the fame and accomplishment of everybody else in the family, right? So that must have been difficult for you and your mom and everybody. I think I said in the book at some point that his life's work, because uh, he was kind of a crazy person in the film business, the man who brought the world a Roma-Rama, among other things, that was one of his more successful ventures, and it wasn't a success. But he he dwelled at the corner of making it and making it up, you know. Wow. Uh, every nickel he made probably cost my mother a dime. <laughs> So, so your your mother was the daughter of Kay Swift, and I think we should start with uh, your description of your grandmother. Who was she in the world, and what was her impact on the world? Well, she was a marvelous grandmother. She was a, a an enthusiast. She was just one of the warmest people who ever lived. Um, she was an incredibly talented musician. She was a child prodigy. She was on a path uh, as a classical composer and a pianist. Um, she was playing with a classical trio uh, who were the hired entertainment for an afternoon tea um, at uh, the Lewison's country house in the Adirondacks. And their, their, their Warburg cousins heard them play. And so then the next thing was that the Edith Rubell trio um, also known as the Musical Arts Trio. They they all got together at what is now called Juilliard and was then called the Institute of Musical Arts. Um, they were then employed to play at the, the afternoon tea at the Warburgs and there Jimmy Warburg walked in and um, first laid eyes on his future wife who was at the piano being beautiful and charming and talented. Uh, and they were a couple who... Um, very attractive, dashing couple. He was uh, working his way up in the family bank. And I should say that um, the family bank, the International Acceptance Bank, his father was president of the Manhattan Bank, which went on to merge with Chase and become Chase Manhattan. His grandfather, um, I'm sorry, my, my grandfather's father, Paul Warburg, um, was the architect of the Federal Reserve. Uh, so uh, this is very scattershot, but I'm just trying to sort of fill in in the big picture. My grandmother, who came from entirely English background, um, her parents actually met um, on, a, on a crossing of the Atlantic when her father had been sent by a New York newspaper to cover the opera season in Paris and London and then was returning where he met um, his future wife, who was from Ashby de la Zouche, and she was coming to America for the first time to visit family. Uh, so my grandmother was entirely British Episcopal, um, unencumbered by money of any kind, but very cultured people. Um, 
my great grandfather went to Penn. Um, and I, I, I don't know that many people who have great grandparents um, who aren't, you know, just complete blue bloods um, mm-hmm. who have college degrees. Yeah. Um, and I should mention that I do not have a college degree, but that's a different story. <laughs> but um, when when Kay Swift, when Catherine Faulkner Swift married James Paul Warburg, it was a mixed marriage. It was the first marriage of its kind for both sides of the family. Um, and it seemed to be a very successful marriage. They had um, one little girl, two little girls, three little girls. They were living in a beautiful double townhouse on 70th Street. Um, And then uh, and and mixing in circles, you know, sort of the Algonquin crowd, um, the New Yorker crowd, um, having marvelous parties by all descriptions. And then uh, a birthday party for Yasha Heifetz and his sister Pauline brought George Gershwin as a date. And that is apparently the the legendary moment of, you know, sort of the two of them meeting. Um, I don't know if they played the piano together that first time. They might have. Um, but apparently everyone in the room felt it and saw that there was this incredible connection between George and Kay, Catherine, as she was then known. Um, it was George who started calling her Kay. Oh, really? Um, and Well, her name was Catherine swift warburg Mm -hmm. and in fact the earliest i manage her estate of music right the earliest copyrights the earliest songs that she and my grandfather her lyricist wrote um were um kay warburg Catherine warburg um and it was george who said um kay swift that's your name use it it's it's the it's the great showbiz name for you george gershwin had this predilection he also told his friend vladimir dukelski that Vernon Duke would sound better. <laughs> and what's Gershwin's original last name? Um, well, it was, it was um, Gershwin, Gershwitz, Gershwin. You know, there are various members of the family, but once he went with Gershwin, um, most of the family then fell in behind and began spelling it the way he did. Mm-hmm. But um, it's one of those names uh, where there are probably people, if you looked in the Manhattan phone book and you saw people named Gershwin or Gershwin, They might be cousins of some kind. Okay. That would be my guess. And Kay, um, um, with this great musical talent, uh, was the first woman ever to compose a hit Broadway show. Fine and dandy, right? Which is really the path that she was diverted to um, by her connection with George, because she knew popular music. She admired popular music, but it wasn't what she was writing. Um, And... George not only introduced her to the music of all of his colleagues and his own music, but uh, the really interesting little leap in 1928, here's this banker's wife presiding over this beautiful household with her family, uh, suddenly is hired to be the rehearsal pianist for the Rogers and Hart musical Connecticut Yankee. So there she is going across town to some rehearsal hall you know, probably, you know, driven by the chauffeur um, to this world away where she was the rehearsal pianist, you know, so she'd be pounding out um, and, and and working with changes and sight reading and changing keys, both for the rehearsing of the dance numbers and for, you know, the, the, the songs um, and needing to really be able to pick it up very quickly and and do it again and do it again. And there was nothing spoiled and fancy about that that was a that was the backstage world yeah you know? and she 
loved it. And um, she and she had begun to write some songs just in that time period. And my grandfather, the banker, um, I suspect, first of all, he was a very gifted poet of light verse. He also was competitive. Um, he also would have at that point been competitive with George Gershwin for her attentions. And it wasn't really quite clear what was going on there. So he became her lyricist. Um, and for, you know, for a banker, he wrote really good lyrics. Um, Can't We Be Friends was their first hit song um, in the 1929 Little Show when Libby Holman sang it to Clifton Webb. So they had songs in the 915 Review. They had songs in the Garrett Gaieties. In those days, many shows um, were reviews. It was how a lot of people got their start, whether it were performers or writers. Uh, and there would just be one number after another, um, almost coming out of vaudeville as, a, as an approach. So even the earliest book musicals still had some aspects of the review where there'd be someone suddenly standing in front of a curtain with a spotlight doing a number in one, as they called it, and that might be because they were frantically changing scenery behind the curtain, but it was also because here's a number for this person to sing, this ballad um, that is her big number. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> and so a lot of shows were still structured as reviews. So it was easy for people to break in um, in a way that it certainly isn't now. I can't imagine that it would be to break in to Broadway or anything like it with a song or a couple of songs because um, these days, that's just not not what happens. But building on the hits that they had, particularly Can't We Be Friends, um, it became inevitable that they could write an entire score. And Joe Cook, the comedian, um, wanted to do a show. Uh, he had had the great success of um, the movie Rain or Shine, a very, very early Frank Capra movie, 1928. Um, and uh, just today, a, a good friend of mine who's writing a book about the um, songwriter Vincent Humans was digging around. He's also the music, <laughs> the artistic advisor to the K Swift Trust, and we work on a lot of K Swift projects. He just discovered an announcement that was completely erroneous that Fine and Dandy was going to have a score by Vincent Humans and a book by George S. Kaufman and Ring Lardner. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, well, that's a show that never happened. Wow. So, but that tells you that in July, in June, I guess it was June, this article ran. In June of 1930, that was what they thought was happening. And that show opened, Fine and Dandy, that huge hit show opened in September. So they wrote the score and uh, Donald Ogden Stewart wrote the book in a matter of, you know, a few weeks, really, just a couple months. And your grandfather used a, uh, a stage name for hit writing because it would have been not respectable for a banker to be writing a Broadway musical, correct? Exactly. And his father was quite concerned about this. So James Paul Warburg, uh, not wanting to use the name Warburg in general and his name in particular, didn't want to alarm the investors or have it seem sort of vulgar or, you know, too downtown, <laughs> uh, was Paul James. Uh, it's funny when you think of it, because I could imagine bank uh, people flocking to invest with someone who was the author of fantastic lyrics like Can't We Be Friends. <laughs> um, it seems to me you wouldn't be putting people off at all now if, if you admitted to having this, you know, 
life after dark that was completely different. <laughs> you said your grandfather would have been competitive with Gershwin for the attention of your grandmother. Was he aware of the affair? I think at a certain point, um, Toulamond was aware of the affair. I think he thought it would blow over. I think I think he too was enthralled by George Gershwin, who started off just as this entertaining character who was around a lot. And then he was around a lot, a lot. And he and Kay would go to art galleries. They would go to concerts. Uh, she had this incredible background uh, and training. So for instance, um, she knew opera deeply. He really didn't. So she took him to Rosencavalier, and it was the first time he had heard Rosencavalier. Um, it also is is pertinent to what he went on to write, uh, Porgy and Bess, in 1935, that they would also very often go to Harlem and listen to jazz and blues. And he was he just loved to go and hear that sound. And they would also go to churches and sit in the back and um be just so admiring of the way the entire congregation could clap on the backbeat <laughs> and uh, just really, you know, it was something they just loved to do together. At a certain point, um, it became clear that this was a, 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 a tremendous connection that had gotten sort of deeper and deeper. But I think, I think as much as anyone can know what happened wasn't right there and wasn't one of those people, um, I think she always loved my grandfather. I don't think she fell out of love with my grandfather. And I don't think she was involved with Gershwin as a reaction to anything at all with my grandfather, who I have every reason to think had been completely faithful to her up to this point. Uh, she definitely had never strayed in any direction at all. She had three little girls, one after the other. She was, you know, <laughs> she was married very young. She had three daughters. Uh, you know, one in 1919, one in 1922, one in 1924. When was she having romances when she met George in 1925? You know, it just it um, it's not as if this was just another affair. It's not as if they had what people never used the phrase in those days. It's erroneous to say that they had an open marriage, although that was the way the story got told retrospectively, I think, out of a desire for my grandfather to save face. Mm -hmm. um, it, we had an open marriage and then her head was so turned by George, you know, mm -hmm. it's maybe a more comfortable way to tell the story. Your book back. is your book is so deeply researched. What did you learn that surprised you even about your very unusual family? That's a great question. I learned a lot of things. And I think it's very important when you set out to write either a family memoir or a biography. This is really a mix of a memoir and researched biography. It's a sort of hybrid um, kind of writing. Um, you might have a thesis, but you have to be prepared to um, be willing to be surprised, be mm -hmm. willing to adjust. Um, so two, the two biggest troves of document um, other than just endless rummaging, uh, what would have been microfiche 30 years ago is now, you know, sit at home in your pajamas and it's the Internet. Mm -hmm. But especially if you have LexisNexis and JSTOR and access to all kinds of archives, um, you can find a lot that appeared in newspapers. You know, more appears all the time that gets sort of scanned in and, you know, didn't exist. And now it's there. 
in an, in an accessible way. The two biggest tranches of, of, of documentation were my father's FBI records, over 800 pages, which I requested so long before I got them, um, so many years before I got them, uh, repeated requests, and finally, um, the, with intervention from my congressman, um, who was then Joe Lieberman, of all people, <laughs> um, the FBI began coughing them up. Wow. Um, and I have to say, as recently as a year ago, I received a, a manila envelope from the CIA with three more pages, mostly redacted. Oh, it's wow. all redacted. It's still it's, all redacted. It's, it's wow. redacted city. It's no hilarious. I mean, well, it's not all redacted, but what I mean yeah. is most pages have blots all over. You know, and now, talk about why redacted. that even happened. Your father was trailed and investigated by the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover for like 40 years. Why did that? My I, father I, was investigated by the FBI beginning in 1936 when he was 26 because somebody said that his movie reviews on WQXR radio sounded a little communist pink <laughs> and oh, so a file was opened what is utterly h hilarious and upsetting my tax dollars and yours at work were that from the beginning they confused him with another sydney kaufman born in the same year in brooklyn who was in the abraham lincoln brigade and fought in the free spain movement that was not my father but many things in my father's records are this other Sidney Kaufman. And I think that the chances are, if I were a different kind of writer with more tenacity than even I have for dealing with the FBI, uh, I would bet that the odds are high that the other Sidney Kaufman's records are full of my Sidney Kaufman's stuff. Hmm. But it means that the FBI couldn't even tell two people apart, even though they were two different people in two different places at the same time. So even as the other Sidney Kaufman was, and this is documented, fighting in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, we have the FBI reporting on my father's activities in New York and in Hollywood. But your dad was so erratic in his movements that I could see the FBI saying, why is he over there? What is he up to? Yeah, it, yes. it is. Yes. It, I, I don't want to yes. use the word suspicious, but peculiar. Oh, everything he did was peculiar and suspicious. Why did we have all these East German typewriters piled up in the garage until they rusted a reef? Mm. <laughs> um, because he took them when someone owed him money and didn't have the money but could pay him in East German typewriters. So, of course, we had a garage full of East German typewriters. And then the FBI observed him going into the Yugoslavia embassy with six, and he came out empty-handed. What was that about? What it was about was that he was trying to figure out who on earth would want these typewriters that did not have QWERTY keyboards. <laughs> they had the other kind of European keyboard. Uh, so he did a lot of things that seemed suspicious, but it, it became very evident, even reading through the redactions, reading around them, reading different documents where they were not redacted um, consistently. So mm. names are blacked out in one that I could read in another. Right. And the names that were blacked out were absurd, like the name of my father's first wife, which is common knowledge. Her name was Fran Heflin. She was an actress, Van Heflin's sister. Um, but she also was considered a communist and was also being investigated. Um, and was it was blacked out, but then it wasn't. Um, but I, I could discern beyond the shadow of a doubt that in my childhood, growing up in New York City, in the suburb that is Forest Hills Gardens, 
our phone was tapped, our mail was tampered with, and our neighbors were door stopped. Wow. And I think that the um, travel agent on Austin Street in Forest Hills reported to the FBI every time my father booked flights to go anywhere. Oh, I think okay. No question. Uh, but, you know, imagine you're, you're the travel agent. FBI men come in, stand in the door. There are the feds and they're saying, are you a good American? Are you a loyal American? Then you do this. But uh, I don't even think I it's able- I don't think it's are you a good American? I think it, if you're questioned, Fritz and I have both been a witness at the same high profile trial and they came to his house first. And I said, I'm not letting them in. And he said, it's a court case. They have a right to interview you. So. I think if the FBI is interviewing you, I think you kind of have to answer the questions whether or not you're a good American. It's just, I think, the right. law. Right. I think that I think they were intimidated. But but I also was able to figure out in a very some very subtle ways, maybe a little bit intangible, but there were all these friendships my parents spoke about that had taken place, had occurred before I was born. And all these people had sort of faded away. And I now realize that half of them became informants, whether they wanted to or not. Um, and maybe the other half, um, you know, if the FBI keep questioning you about who was at the dinner party, who was at the party, who were you with, what did they talk about? You might not be so eager to spend more time with my family. Oh, for sure. I mean, it was a tricky time to have an opinion, for sure, yeah. in the 50s. Yeah. But yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if it, you're kind of dismissive that the FBI didn't find anything about my dad and it was a big waste of time. Can you believe they shared all these memos and spent all this time typing them up? But isn't it possible that they maybe overheard a conversation that led them to someone who led them to someone who could have been? Maybe. He he was in a lot of other people's files. He crossed. He was the, the zealot of communists. <laughs> he, he knew a lot of important communists. He knew a lot. He knew half the Hollywood 10. He'd had a big affair with Martha Dodd, who was a spy, who fled just before she was going to be arrested and you know, lived the rest of her life behind the Iron Curtain. Um, he was, but he was small fry. He would have been so gratified to know that he actually was being followed around and wiretapped because I think he thought he was, but it was also an ego thing. Um, he was never, he was never arrested. He was never charged, mm-hmm. but he, re- the last documents I saw really were, um, I think, just a year before Hoover's death. I mean, so it was really the entire arc of Hoover's career. Uh, And Hoover was copied. There was this long list of people copied on every memo, and his name was always there. Um, There were memos that consisted entirely of all the names and addresses of people in my father's address book. I wonder how they got that. Wow. Uh, You know, it just... (laughs) <laughs> the irony is that didn't your father make propaganda films for the United States government for World War II? Yes, II? he did. He so, was in the OSS. Uh, he was in the OSS. Wow. Yes. The other thing, well, here's something the FBI never noticed that I think is fantastic. One of his earliest gigs when he was a teenager um, was making a documentary film about a camp for workers' children that was in upstate New York, that was Camp Wochika, which was like workers' children camp. <laughs> and it was consciously lefty and and mixed race. I mean, it, it was it was 
uh, very consciously wanting to have this be a, a, a sort of marvelous utopia for workers' children. And he made a documentary about it and not a peep from the FBI about this. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so who knows what they were after? But So what was yeah. your relationship with your father? I mean, I'm sure it changed over time, but well, before I, you got into the research of his me. life. He did stop speaking to me um, and never met his grandchildren. Um, but he also died very unexpectedly. So the clock ran out before that could be repaired. Um, it's it's a semi-complicated yet tedious story. But he was an erratic man. He was a thin-skinned bully, aren't most bullies mm. also thin-skinned? Um, so here's the, the biggest surprise from the FBI records. And maybe it was the thing I had always held out hope for, which was that maybe there was another family. Maybe my father had a complete other family, other wife, other children, somewhere else. And they were his real family. You know, wow. like like Lindbergh. <laughs> so I never they didn't mention this at all. So I was looking for something that wasn't there. But was so, it a relief not to find it? It wasn't just that he didn't care that much for us. It no, was... it wasn't a relief. I just think it, the FBI didn't find it. I, I, I don't I'm not saying that's proof that there was another family. I'm saying I actually was expecting something like that. And then it, it wasn't there. It now, was like a joke with no punchline. Right, right, right. It's just like, what would explain this guy? Something more, please. And that's what the FBI, I think that's why they persisted, sort of throwing good money after bad. It's like, he's got to be up to something. I mean, you know? <laughs> you'd think at the FBI that they would factor mental illness into some kind of explanation in in, in human behavior. That right. It, Delusional grandiosity. Sure. I mean, we talk about, you know, nowadays yeah. you talk about the useful idiot, but at least the idiot's doing something for Russia, right. you know? No, he wasn't being handled. Um, I just think he wandered in and out. Um, you know, there is a memo, subject's wife gave birth to female child, 12 November, 1955. You know, that's me. Um, subject's <laughs> wife gave birth to female child. You know, so my, you know, if only they had known, they could have used that as a birth announcement. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to one of your earlier <laughs> comments. You think the ripple in the water description that you did, that your grandmother and her relationship with Gershwin precipitated your mother marrying Sidney Kaufman. I do. What was it, it about it, him that makes you think that? He was brilliant. He actually had a physical resemblance, which I think I mm. lined up some photos in the book that kind of make that case. He was was from a very, very similar background. Um, and I suppose he was someone completely unsuitable, um, which also would have been very appealing. Um, but my mother was the child George Gershwin was closest to in his short life. And um, her her closeness to him, I think, really was, I think she and her mother had this bond, which may be why she was the closest of the three daughters to her mother. They mourned George Gershwin for the rest of their lives. Uh, and he just played this this central role. And I think my father was like a faint echo of so many of the ways that George Gershwin simply occupied a room. And I make no case for my father being talented, or productive like like George Gershwin, but um, 
there was something there. He just uh, felt where, like home. Sometimes we look for someone or we're drawn to someone who feels like home and he felt like home, but it was maybe kind of a myth, you know, because there wasn't yes. no depth there. Yes, yes. And, you know, Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Right. And, you know, there was something there that rhymed. But the other pile of documents that was really revelatory for me as I was writing the book, going in a completely different direction, my grandmother after Gershwin's death, when she had been staff composer at Radio City when it opened, writing numbers for the Rockettes, then she became director of light music at the 1939 World's Fair, met a cowboy who was with a traveling rodeo that was connected in some loose way to the World's Fair, and she eloped with him after knowing him a couple of weeks and went off and lived with him on his ranch in Oregon. And while she was there, um, there was only a party line and it was wartime. You couldn't get a new telephone. Um, and she wrote letters to her closest friend in the world, Mary Lasker, as you might know of her. She was then Mary Reinhardt. They had gone to Reno together to get their first divorces together. They were always pals from the time of, they were teenagers, I think. Uh, but Mary Lasker married Albert Lasker and became this incredibly in, uh, generous philanthropist with a, a lot of interest in medical research um, and, and became this very grand personage. But in those days, um, Mary and Kay simply wrote letters almost every day. And my grandmother did not save letters. She always said letters are for today and would tear them up and throw them away. She um, famously in certain circles um, destroyed everything from George and asked Ira Gershwin to destroy everything of hers that, that was in George's possession at the time of his death. So there are no letters between Kay and George that certainly did exist. There are also almost no photographs of them together and I think that she also destroyed those. She, she, it was private. It was her business. She destroyed them. But talk she about that for keep... a second, because in the book, you just kind of explain that that's what happened. But I'm mm -hmm. wondering if she was worried about scandal or if, because she knew she was destroying history. She knew that this was, this person had made his mark on the American musical landscape. Yes. And, that... and I think she knew that people would be interested. And I think she also thought it was nobody's business. Wow. And it was her. So in her attempt to control the narrative, as we call it these days, she did herself a disservice. I think it was her right to do it. I Look, I think it was Nabokov's right to say, please destroy all my unpublished manuscripts. And I also think it's fantastic that Dmitry Nabokov said, the hell we will, and published them. You <laughs> so, know? But, the, but, then, but then, Catherine, the curious <laughs> thing is that she spends the rest of her life celebrating and forwarding his musical works. Keeping the candle lit. Yes, but that's the public side. Okay. I think she felt that what she and George had was just theirs and nobody else's. But what she inadvertently did and maybe wouldn't have cared about it, but she effaced herself from the story because Kitty Carlisle had letters from George. I think she may have slept with him a couple of times. It wasn't, I mean, George Gershwin was never <laughs> monogamous. <laughs> and uh, But also how could he ask my grandmother how could my, my grandmother impose monogamy on him, you know, demand that of him when she's still sleeping with her husband? Sure, sure, you sure. But was it, was Gershwin married at the time of never, his affair? Never, never oh, married anybody. Okay. No. So there are women who had letters from George. If that's all that's left now, 
then that makes them more important mm. than someone who, you know, well, everyone says they had this big romance for 10 years and he gave her all these amazing things and dedicated the songbook to her. But where are the letters? There were no letters. You know, so she kind of erased herself from the story to a certain degree, especially the story immediately after his death. I do think marrying a cowboy and leaving town and going to live on a ranch in Oregon was a fantastic exit strategy for her. In yeah, that part is quite a twist. Yeah. So now, she wrote I letters to Mary. The Mary saved her letters. They are all there in Butler Library at Columbia University in the Mary Lasker archive. Oh, wow. And those letters, which I quote from in the book. Yes, and I love um, it. So dishy. The voice, the voice is so marvelous. When she writes to Mary and it's, you know, New Year's Eve this year was so cozy and we were in bed by nine o'clock wearing, you know, three layers of flannels because the house is freezing. <laughs> and just think this time a year ago, you know, you and I would have been dolling ourselves up preparing to go out while some emotional problem in pants waited for us in the next room. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this history, but Carol King does pretty much the same thing at the peak of her fame. She just marries a cowboy and gets the hell out of out of Los Angeles and lives on a hill. In, Interesting. Yeah, digging, you know, their own plumbing. So right. sometimes so it's the just... Letters. It clears that it clears the, the, the head. The letters made something evident to me that was not the family's version of the story. Okay. Like, oh, mother married her cowboy, or she ran off with this cowboy. Yes, yeah, she did. She really loved him, and she was pregnant twice, wanting to have his child. Mm -hmm. She was really in it, and no one in the family spoke about that in any but the most cynical way. But it was it was real. And I never knew that. I met him and I never knew that. And he was an alcoholic. I think he became violent. I think it was a marriage that she had to leave. But for those first years, it was the real thing. And that was very moving to me. And she, she miscarried both times. She was in her 40s. He thought she was in her 30s. She lied about her age. He thought she was 10 years younger than she was. And... He was. <laughs> and uh, Every now and then I imagine the phantom, you know, wouldn't that child have been an interesting experiment? Mm -hmm. half, you know, cowboy from Oregon, half K Swift. Something in me thinks he would have been a man and he would have he would now be in his late 70s. He'd be Roy Rogers. How many siblings yeah. <laughs> did you how many siblings did your mother have? My mother had um, an older sister and a younger sister. And then. When her father remarried for the second time, his third wife, they had kids who are my contemporaries. So my mother, when she was having her own children, also had two half brothers and two half sisters who are my age. Mm -hmm. well, I'm just curious about how the rest of the family reacted when the Gershwin affair started to drip into family lure. Did the children resent it? Or did they were they angry yeah, at their I mother? Think, I think my mother's older sister was old enough to see exactly what was going on and 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 resent it and be very unhappy about it. I think my mother's little sister was little. Um, didn't really like George. And she once said to me, he would, I asked her, what didn't you like? And she said, he gave her the creeps. He once <laughs> bent down and sort of squatted and looked at her eye level and said, why don't you like me? I want you to like me, <laughs> oh, which boy. is actually not 
not a good gambit, you know. With <laughs> no. I've tried that with many people <laughs> of various ages. It never works. <laughs> now, right. we need to talk about Dr. Zilberg because we okay, just we Dr. just Zilberg. we just do. Yes. So, um yes. how many lives did he harm? How was he able to gain this access to important and talented people? Was he like a Rasputin type of person, do you think? Charming, he was, he controlling? Was like a Rasputin or a Spengali. Okay. Dr. Gregory Zilborg was this Russian so-called self-conferred title psychoanalyst. I want to say it's very clear to me, some of the research I did, and it built on some research that a distinguished psychoanalyst in California did and published a paper, which I quote from, you know, which, which is about the treatment and death of George Gershwin. Dr. Zilborg had falsified his credentials. He did not have the training he claimed he had in Russia. So when he came to America, he was given courtesy appointments and he was considered an MD. He was considered a doctor. He was a training analyst at the New York Psychoanalytic, although he was uncredentialed. And interestingly enough, he was never licensed in New York. Yet he was this distinguished character who managed to worm his way in with, um, I, I don't think he had patients who weren't rich and famous, um, whether it was Lillian Hellman or Moss Hart, Lady in the Dark, mm-hmm. uh, or um, my grandmother, my grandfather, George Gershwin, most famously in some ways, you know, Lillian Hellman. Um, and I think he gossiped about his patients with his patients. Well, he pitted, he, he pitted them against each other. He, he manipulated them. Each other. I think he had sex with any number of them. He threatened he, them to reveal their secrets. He, it was such crazy. He compelled crazy. my cousin, my late charming, marvelous cousin, Edward M.M. Warburg, um, known for his contributions in founding what became MoMA, you know, sort of the foundation of Harvard Art Society, um, and also um, with Lincoln Kirstein, um, you know, bringing Balanchine to America and founding that ballet company. Wow. But Eddie was in analysis with Gregory Zilberg for 26 years. Oh, my God. And um, he was held hostage. He... Zilborg made him pay his taxes. Eddie talked to me about this. He said he would he would lie on the couch and say, I think I'm getting Mary a mink coat. And Zilborg would say, you get my wife a mink coat also. Oh, my gosh. No. In the in the files of the New York Psychoanalytic, which I'm not supposed to have seen, so I don't know why I know this. Hmm. um, There were charges against him by someone with no connection to anybody. who said that Zilborg had demand when he saw the man wearing a beautiful new watch, he demanded that the patient give it to him. And that sure does ring true to me based on everything. I so he, he, he was attracted to your grandmother and then he, he told George Gershwin that these headaches that he was having were just him being dramatic. On George's medical record, George died in California. He and Ira had gone to the West Coast. He and my grandmother were, as we would say these days, taking a break. I believe Gershwin was encouraged forcefully by Zilborg to go away, to go to California, try your hand at writing film scores. Maybe that will be successful after the not total success of Porgy and Bess. And, you know, start a new chapter, start a new life, get away from her. I really believe that, that Zilborg worked against her because he was her 
analyst first. She was referred by my grandfather, Jimmy Warburg's sister, Bettina, who was herself a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. Um, he was her training analyst. She referred her sister-in-law to him. Um, you know how sisters-in-law can be. I wonder what kind of gift that was supposed to be. <laughs> but um, my grandmother went to him because of this dilemma of really, it was a dilemma. It was a growing problem that was just haunting her now. She was in love with two men at the same time. Right. What to do? Right. How could she live with this? And now she's in analysis in analysis with, with Zilborg, who um, is forcing her to have sex with him in those analytic hours for which she paid. And in her words to me, he was the only man I ever had sexual intercourse with to whom I was not physically attracted. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and it's tragic. It's just yeah. tragic. I mean, it, it, she said it with a little with a little laugh, but it was awful. So she, I believe this precipitated a crisis. I believe there's the possibility that she was pregnant that summer Mm -hmm. um, and would not have known whose it was. Mm -hmm. I think she went to Mexico and had an abortion. That is what I pieced together from things in the letters and things I know in other ways. And I think she resolved that she didn't know what would happen with George, but she needed to to have be divorced. She needed to clarify. So she and my grandfather divorced in the end of that year, 1934, December 1934, they are divorced. She then had some a couple of years with George where they certainly spent huge amounts of time together, but there was no sign that he was going to marry her. It's not clear that she wanted to marry. I think if they had married, they could have ended up it would have run its course and they could have ended up divorced. But mm-hmm. um, there are those who think he never would have married her. Um, his mother didn't like that she wasn't Jewish. Mm-hmm. And she, first, she didn't like her because she was married and not Jewish. Then she didn't like her because she was divorced and still not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it nothing... There was no forward movement there, but I think it would be unfair to say she divorced my grandfather in order to marry George. I think she divorced my grandfather in order to get clarity. But meanwhile, George and Jimmy were both so impressed with her newfound sense of direction that they both went into analysis with Gregory Zilberg. Oh, wow. And she, he had threatened Kay, if you leave, which she wanted to do, and she did, I will turn them against you. And he did. I believe Zilborg very successfully oh turned George and Jimmy against her. Uh, my grandfather remained in analysis with him for a, another decade or more after that. And I believe that he was the architect of the um, revised history of what happened there um, that really tarred my grandmother as a silly um you know, promiscuous socialite, which is not what she was at all. Well, talk about uh, her contribution to Porgy and and Bess after after the death of George Gershwin. Well, before the death of George Gershwin, right. her contribution to the writing of Porgy and Bess, she was there. She wasn't there every minute. She wasn't there when he went down to Folly Beach. But in the Library of Congress, you can see the original manuscript of Porgy and Bess, and there are bars of music in her handwriting. Mm-hmm. She was there um, when he was writing it. Um, there's a marvelous description at the end of um, that year, 
So she had just divorced my grandfather. It's her first Christmas, you know, so December 1934, when Richard Rogers' wife was on bed rest with a high-risk pregnancy. And he described this in his memoir, Christmas Eve, 11 o'clock at night, the doors burst open and in came George and Kay like the Magi. And they went to the piano and they sang and played this work in progress, most of Porgy and Bess. Um, and it was just this, this magical night. She was part of it. She was part of the casting. Mm-hmm. I met um, Anne Brown, the original Bess. Um, and there, there was a Gershwin symposium in 1998 at, at the um, Library of Congress, and she was part of it, and I I was actually part of it. Um, many major people were part of it. Uh, but she told me, we went for lunch, and she told me that my grandmother was there during a lot of the casting and during almost all the rehearsing, and she said that my grandmother had a graceful way of giving you a note that was so graceful, you didn't even realize it was a note. You thought <laughs> it was praise, and then you thought about it, and you realized it was a note. <laughs> but the, but it, so. it, it didn't it didn't meet with great reviews before George died, and then afterwards no, it, it, she... No, it, it, it met with very mixed reviews, and shame, shame, shame forever on Virgil Thompson, who talked about... Um, of what was it? I mean, he made this really anti-Semitic remark about it. Um, And now I'm forgetting what it was. It was so offensive. Um, Something. Yeah. Who needs this gefilte fish orchestration? Right, right, right. It was it was considered neither fish nor fowl. And I think from then to now, is it a musical? Is it an opera? Is it high? Is it low? What is it? It confounded people. And in his lifetime, it wasn't a resounding success. And he, he had another opera in mind. He wanted to write something possibly about Uncle Tom's Cabin. He was still interested in that part of life. I swear he would have written a Juneteenth opera if he'd lived long <laughs> enough. Yeah. Um, and um, he, he was very discouraged by that, which I think was another reason he went to the West Coast and had the tremendous success with those film scores, the, the uh, Astaire and Rogers films. Mm-hmm. Um, after his death, my grandmother toured with Porgy and Bess um, revivals, gave lectures, re- really was sort of a leading authority on Porgy and Bess and was really in harness to the Porgy and Bess <laughs> business, you know, for, mm-hmm. for years. I've seen the contracts. She was employed and not for very much money. And they often argued about whether she was going to be reimbursed for her wardrobe. <laughs> but wow. I think it was at the expense of writing her own music. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, she was certainly extraordinarily gifted, just a natural musician. You know, like like song just sprang from her. She was. And what person. she did write was really good. Yeah. And there also it's a history of near misses because she also wrote songs for shows that didn't get off the ground. She wrote songs for pilots that didn't get made for television she ended up doing industrials. She wrote some of the best music you've ever heard for Elsie the Cow for the Borden's Pavilion at the World's <laughs> Fair in 1964. When you're you're telling that story of your your grandmother as she's kind of um, succumbing to a bit of dementia, and your mm. your daughter is at the piano playing fine and dandy, she doesn't quite recognize the tune, but in her core, you know, from from her very core, outpours flourishes and counter melodies that just she could she could support this interesting melody this child was playing she could start playing you know sort of harmonies and accompanying absolutely yes and i'm convinced she didn't recognize it 
But that's just who she was. She was music. So when she was in her final months, she was in an Alzheimer's facility because she no longer knew where she was. And I was walking with her in this facility and we got back to her room and she had a roommate and the, the names were in these sort of, you know, slots like an office, you know, the name, you know, one name, another name for who's in this, who lives in this room. And as I didn't even know she knew her name was on the wall there. But as we walked back into her room, she pointed at her name and she said, look, top billing. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> That's, so that was, you know, in her, I, you know, I don't think she lived another month after that, but it was, you know, she was, she was at her core also um, on, and I don't mean fake or phony, but I just mm -hmm. mean sort of, you know, ready to broadcast, ready to receive, ready to be connected to the world ah. always. So now you talk about how your mother was the child in the family best suited to receive George Gershwin. And then you were the child in your family best suited to receive your your family legacy, your grandmother. You were the one. I was geographically on the spot when cousins, you know, lived thousands of miles away. Um, I was named for my grandmother. I am Catherine Swift myself. Um, yeah. I, but don't you think every family has the designated historian, mm -hmm. you know, the, the one who's interested, the one yeah. who is the keeper of you know, the, the the memorabilia, but also, you know, the emotional memorabilia, the, mm -hmm. you know, the one who's interested in the story. And I don't mean to be interested in a sense of dwelling only on the past. I mean, I'm I'm a novelist. This isn't where you and you and I today are talking about this book I wrote that's a memoir. But, you know, I have my seventh book of fiction coming out in March. I mean, I'm essentially a fiction writer. Right. Um, so this is not my main sort of purpose in life. And at the very beginning, you said, you know, people said all my life, you know, you should write a book. It's true. People have said that since I was a child, mm -hmm. but they then started saying you should write a novel about them. Mm. And I never wanted to write a novel about Kay and George because the, the, the power and the meaning of it isn't that it's people like Kay and George. It is Kay and George. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a novel. Right, right, right. It's it's the truth. Yeah. Well, your book yeah. is full of so many great little historic tidbits. Your grandfather, Warburg, the one who was responsible for being the architect of the Federal Reserve. Great-grandfather, Paul. Great, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. And mm -hmm. he's the mm -hmm. one that predicted the stock market crash of 29, but nobody believed him? The Cassandra of Wall Street, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Talk about some of the myths and the uh, conspiracy theories, because you were able to debunk all of them. I, I'm kind of well, vaguely aware that this stuff exists some, somewhere in the in the ether. This kind well, of in the ether. Try YouTube. Yeah. Try look up. If you look up Farrakhan Paul Warburg, you can see Farrakhan tell a throng of cheering people how while Paul Warburg was staying in the finest hotels of Europe, um, profiting from IG Farben, um, what can I say? I think he might've been on the board of IG Farben um, in the twenties. Um, I mean, Siemens also is a company that lives on. I mean, many companies were then involved in the war and were you know, involved in, in the Third Reich for sure. But I would, I, I'd like to point out when he talks about how little babies were being gassed by the Germans and Paul Warburg was staying in the finest hotels. It's a neat trick because he died in March of 1932. 
<laughs> so it's just it's just false information. Mm -hmm. But when well, what you talk you're talking about, the about is he was the he and guys like Henry Ford, the notorious anti-Semites, thought that he was the ringleader of the so-called international Jewish yes. banking conspiracy. Yes. So not only is there an international Jewish banking conspiracy, but my family is at the heart of it. And Paul Warburg was the ringleader. And I've said this before, and I'll say it now. If that were true, and again, he died in 1932, he was actually the one in the family who, in effect, was devoted to public service because of the Federal Reserve Board. Um, so he stepped out when his brothers continued to make a lot of money, and he didn't because he was in public service. Mm -hmm. uh, if that were true, then where the hell is my money? <laughs> That's all I want to say is like, wait, you know, why are we not just, you know, so rich if we are these, you know, <laughs> I mean, banksters, as they are called. These anti-Semitic. There's something about the name Warburg that that it, it's like a lightning rod. Well, there could and be, I don't even know why. I mean, there, there's there's equally industrious, wealthy Gentile families about whom these myths are not being created. So these mm -hmm. these anti-Semitic tropes have gone on for centuries. And it's just, you know, he's conveniently slotted into playing the roles of the role of the villains, your grandfather and your great grandfather. But yes, this is stuff. Yes. this is stuff that is it isn't new to this century, even, unfortunately. No, no it's not. And um, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which I think I think there are certain Congress persons from the state of Georgia who probably read it every night before bedtime. <laughs> um, what can I say? I, it, it's always, <laughs> what was it Mencken who said nobody ever went broke underestimating the American public? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing what people will believe. And, oh, and, to, they... and to debunk it is to perpetuate it if, if certain people hear about it. Well, I, I mean, I think that what people will believe, no matter how crazy, is what people wish were true because it somehow aligns with their prejudices. Or some, or, yes, or their fears, or their fears, it's, or what have you. So it's like it's, QAnon it's, it's is like lunging for confirmation bias. Yeah. So QAnon is this is you know conspiracy that says you know Jewish elites and and Democrats eat babies. So now it's not just okay to hate them; it's your civic duty to hate them because they're baby eaters. So it's just giving yes. people permission to feel the way they already felt. That's kind of the way I feel about all this stuff. But I want to end on something much more positive because yes. you, you're, you're about to come out with your next book and we want well, to Well, I just it. finished today re responding to the brilliant copy editing that I'm very grateful for. The book doesn't come out till March next year. Okay. Um, but it's a, it's a novella with stories that are somewhat linked. The entire book is a flow of stories that then culminate in a novella. And although they are manifestly different stories, there are a lot of echoes from first page to last. Of uh, it turns out, although some of these stories appeared in early forms, you know, in it, my first fiction in print was in the New Yorker in 1993. Uh, it turns out I've been writing about the same thing over and over my whole career, even if it isn't manifestly the same thing. It really kind of is the same. I'm telling a lot of the same stories, making a lot of the same gestures um, over all these years. And with a so, broad stroke, what is that same thing? That there are always more more hidden sides to a story than you will ever know. Mm. And there is only there is only ever the parallax view. There is always the limit to what you know about anyone else or or yourself. Wow. Or your own history. I love that. 
So the, the story of the novella, which is the title piece of the book, is about two children who break into houses in their neighborhood. It's set in the 80s. Break into their houses in their neighborhood and roam around and take little souvenirs and are just in their own little world. Um, and then they discover um, in, a, in a backyard, in a shed, um, the entrance to a forgotten bomb shelter. Okay. Wow. And they make that their headquarters. Oh, wow. All right. Well, we will look forward to that. You can <laughs> find uh, Catherine Weber. Uh, tell us how to find you on Twitter. Uh, Catherine Weber. But Catherine there's an underscore. Un- underline thingy Weber. Yeah. 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 Um, and I'm Catherine with an A. Right. Like Catherine Hepburn, um, like Catherine Swift. Um, <laughs> and I'm CatherineWeber.com. I actually also pay for CatherineWeber.com. In case you type it wrong, you'll still get to my website. There you <laughs> go. Now you're and and kswift.com for news of various exciting Swift projects. There's a play adaptation inspired by my book, The Memory of All That, that is a play with music about about Kay and George and Jimmy and the writing of Fine and Dandy. And it's kind of consolidated to that moment. Mm. It takes place in the Warburg's living room. The piano is in the middle of the stage and the Kay performer and the George performer play the piano and that is where the so it's a play with music it's not a musical it's by david caudle and it's called duet for three. Oh, i'm coming and to see that we we were we were going like gangbusters developing this it had a, a workshop it had three public performances in new york and then came the pandemic mm-hmm. so we sort of ground to a halt with that but i'm hoping that duet for three has a new you know, a new start. Oh, absolutely. I think it will. Which is this story that we have just been talking about. Yes. I need to come to New York to see that. So here come your closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Catherine Wepper. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. And now Fritz has more to tell you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us greatly if you would uh, sort of push us toward being more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may even find some binge-worthy stuff in there. We've got Diane Warren and Tony Dow and Bill Moomy and the Cowsills and Gary Puckett and Henry Winkler and Keith Morrison. Tons of interesting people from all spectrums of life. Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. And subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. That was so awesome. That was awesome, Catherine. That was just great, Catherine. Thank you.